Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Writing all this code is fun, but when you have to actually deploy, it can be rather nerve-wracking. A bad deployment can result in corrupted data, system failures, angry customers, and hours of wasted time. Avoiding busted deployments will become a priority after you've experienced just one. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the ways to make your application deployments more resilient. We'll also discuss best practices for avoiding and surviving bad application deployments. But before we get started, Will, what's been deploying you lately? <laughs> I don't know. That, that one didn't come out the way it sounded yeah, in my head. You got to work on that one. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know that I have any really tech-oriented stuff because this last week has been kind of crazy. A lot of pair programming, a lot of system support stuff. But there's a, there's a restaurant that I've really enjoyed going to. That's a Uzbek place here in Nashville. And I was really looking forward to going this weekend. And I happened to read the news before I headed out the door and realized I couldn't go because Yelp did a review of restaurants in the country and they placed ninth. Um, and so like they're going to be slammed for a little while. <laughs> so I was a little bit bummed by that, but uh, went and got me some Korean food instead. So it's all good. I don't really have a whole lot to report. Last last week was pretty hairy as far as workload and everything else. So I really didn't have any free time much at all. How about you? So speaking of restaurants, I discovered that there is a Salvadorian restaurant uh, down here. Huh. And so I am going there Thursday. I have this this theory, theology, well, not really theology, but ideology, I suppose, about uh, dating. If I have to go on first dates, at least I'm going to go places that I want to go. I mean, seriously, like first dates are, are awkward and weird. And so I might as well enjoy some aspect of it. And so I have a have a first date and I was like, hey, there's this Salvadorian restaurant that I found out about. I really want to check out. And she's like, I've never been there. Sounds like fun. So, hey, that's a good start. And it's a good way to to see how picky she is, too, because like, yeah, that's the pits. When you get yeah. one that that won't try anything new. It's like, okay, well. Yeah, yeah, that that can be. That's for sure. Uh, let's see. In other news, I'm getting ready for the art show we're having at church uh, in a couple of weeks. It's actually the day after my birthday. So I know uh, last week we recorded my birthday episode. I think this is coming out two weeks after my birthday episode. So uh, we'll have definitely already done the the art show by the time this comes out. But got a couple of couple of pieces that I'm finishing up. Got some photos that I need to... I've been editing. I need to do some more editing. I need to order some some prints of them. Then I've actually got a photo shoot this weekend with a friend of mine right here in my office. I've been working on that. Speaking of which, I've been cleaning my house and mostly my office uh, just because we're going to do the kind of punk rock themed photo shoot right here behind me with my guitars and stuff. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And then in uh, really cool news, I am closing on my house on Friday. Nice. So, yeah. By the time this, uh, this airs, I will, I will own this home. And so uh, 
for you guys, it doesn't mean much, but for Will, in maybe a month or so, he will be getting a different view of me because I am moving all of my office into a different room. Well, the real meaning for me is not having to help you move your heavy oak furniture. <laughs> That's a... <laughs> what do you mean not having to help me move? You're coming over here to help me move it from one room to the other. Didn't you know that? Didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll, well, I mean, you can, you're welcome to come down and you know, like drink up the rest of the alcohol that has been like the mm. bourbon I've got sitting here. <laughs> I haven't touched in over a year. So it's actually some pretty nice bourbon. Yeah, I was going to say, you always had some pretty good stuff. That's a... Uh, I'll have to think about that one. And it, it's literally just moving it from run, one room to the other. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then at some point, I might help you come down here when I replace the floors and help me move stuff around for that. But uh, yeah, so that'll be, that'll be fun. I need to finish up cleaning before I get into that. So but that's, that's what I got going on. It's uh, been a lot of stuff, been a lot going on, but only a few things just focused, kind of entering this weird season of my life where I'm not doing like a million different things. I'm just really focused on a handful of things doing a lot within them, which I, is weird I for me. A lot of people are doing that. It's, yeah. uh, it seems like it's up in the air and I think it's going to be really good for everybody. Yeah. Been really, really hitting the guitar too. Probably talk more about that in the aftercast, but because uh, you know we got some some guitar players, some musicians there. But uh, yeah, I've been really hitting the guitar. If you guys check out the aftercast, I'll talk about the song I, I wrote. Nice. So yeah, but uh, yeah, so check the the aftercast out for that. Saving money is hard, especially when you deploy to AWS and you don't realize that you've overrun your costs. Ooh, well, we could. Is it worse than what Microsoft did? It's the same. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Corporate needs to tell you the, needs you to tell the difference between these two pictures. It's the same picture. Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at CDP, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan for your financial future, but also to take action on that plan so that you can create and live your best life. Guys, investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up also has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So it's not too early to start now. Yeah, and best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. And what that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but he's here to help guide you to a better financial situation. And if you want to hear more about this, you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face. And on that podcast, he also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigate their own careers. And he has even more stuff at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Deployment of software is probably one of the most painful parts of the whole process. Deployment considerations have always been sort of a can of worms for software and have often served to shape the way software is designed, developed, and used in a way that is hard to overestimate. In fact, the success of modern web applications is often attributed to their relatively simpler deployment model when compared to traditional desktop and mobile apps. This seems to be true even before you start considering things like mobile and cross-platforms. 
deployment is often one of the first places where an application runs into serious problems with load, security, configuration, logging, monitoring, and backward compatibility. Making your deployment process resilient is not easy. In fact, we have an entire industry for this. It's called DevOps. Not only do you have to potentially make changes to a running application while people are using it, but you have to make sure that you can quickly recover from mistakes while trying to get this done quickly. A resilient deployment process can best be characterized as one where the users have no idea that anything is even going on with the system during most deployments. Additionally, a resilient deployment system does not have notably degraded performance during a deployment, can be rolled back to a previous state with as little work as possible, and can easily be verified for correctness. It's kind of a tall order, and it's likely to be neglected by the people in charge in favor of rolling out yet another feature because the pain isn't theirs. But your deployment process is as much a part of your software as any other feature. After all, if the users can't get in to do their work, that new feature isn't going to matter. So in this episode, we're going to discuss some things that you can do to make your deployments more resilient. These principles will not cure all your ills with deployments. If either of us could do that, uh, we'd be recording this podcast from a private island or two or four. Private Rather, continent. yeah, yeah, private continent. Why not? You know, just go buy Australia. <laughs> Take one of the big ones. Take one of the big ones. <laughs> <laughs> if you do follow these principles, you will encounter fewer problems while deploying. Will be more able to resolve problems that occur while you are deploying. And you will annoy your user base and management a lot less. That last part is especially important because poor performance in this area will make you more reluctant to deploy more frequently. This causes a cycle of larger, more complex deployments that are more likely to have issues. You see where this is going. Like most things, resilient deployments become more resilient by being accomplished more often. Now, in the aftercast, we're going to discuss principles of better deployments and what developers need from deployments. So rule number one for resilient deployments is to limit the surface area of a deployment, of any given deployment. A lot of people will do things based on their source control architecture. They'll say, hey, we're deploying everything that's in this repo, right? And if you ever do that with a mono repo, you know that that really hurts. Your source control architecture should not determine how your deployments are structured. You should deploy the minimum amount of stuff and avoid redeploying things that have already been deployed. Yeah, I worked on an application not terribly long ago that uh, it had a single API. Most of the endpoints were used across multiple UI applications. But uh, what we were building had three Angular applications, and then a set of Angular libraries to go with them. And so each one of those had its own deployment and release, build and release, basically. Now, if we changed one of the libraries, we had to deploy everything because, but if you weren't changing a library, if you were changing, you know, we'll just call them app one, two, and three. If you're changing app two, apps one and three, they didn't have to get deployed. The libraries didn't have to get rebuilt and deployed, stuff like that. It was only 
like the only time you changed all of them was if you did that. But they were all in the same repo. All actually in the same Angular app, and then there are sub apps under it. Yeah, I'm very familiar with three apps in the same repo, like quite literally, (laughs) (laughs) including them being (laughs) Angular. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, super duper familiar. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with this is like it makes the deployment faster, first of all. Oh, yeah. But it limits the number of things that can go wrong and it makes it faster to roll back to a previous state. Like you don't have to rebuild all three pieces. You know, if you go, oh, man, I screwed this one piece up. You know, I'm not having to rebuild the whole app and push the whole thing back out because like, man, some of those Angular builds, especially if you don't have stuff optimized, man, they chew up a ton of time. Yeah, that was one thing that we we did have all three of us developers and our architect were kind of like sticklers for optimization when it came to to that. So if we could optimize it, we would. Yeah. Which which was quite nice. Towards this end, you should also be limiting what is being built upstream of a deployment. Like if your deployment starts when a build is completed. This makes rebuilds and redeployments a lot faster making recovery easier if you have to roll forward, which we don't really recommend. Yeah. So basically, you know, most places you'll build and then there's a triggered deploy after that. You want that build to be as small as possible too. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how small your redeploy is if you have to rebuild the entire mono repo just to drop this one file out here. Guess where I got that point from? <laughs> Life also experience. From experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I get that. I get that. Now, when you reduce the amount of stuff you deploy, it also makes troubleshooting and sanity checks a lot easier because there are fewer variables to consider. What this does is it allows you to validate a deployed build for correctness much faster. You just touch the things that you changed and you make sure, hey, this is up, it's working. You know, we didn't goof and have a feature flag set wrong or something goofy like that. I don't have to check the whole app and go, oh, well, here's this thing that we deployed a year ago for the first time and it hasn't changed in a year, but now I have to check it because we just redeployed and we might have busted it. Yeah, yeah. So next, I guess the the next uh, principle, is that what we're doing these? Calling these yeah, principle slash rule. Yeah, the, the next uh, principle rule. Principle rule. Okay. Principle rule. I don't, I don't know about that, but like that. Deploy in parallel and cut over when ready. In production, especially a production app that other people rely on, you should do what you can to limit outages because of maintenance windows. However, if you are deploying over the top of an existing deployment, downtime is basically unavoidable during the deployment. And the thing is, is that you know you can speed up your deployment a lot and limit this, but you do kind of lose a lot of things in the middle of a deploy. So for instance, if you deploy your new backend API and and the front end is changing. If somebody's in the front end at this point, their workflow is, is potentially disrupted. Their records may be in a weird state. So you tend to kind of have to lock them out just to go, hey, don't, you can't get in while we're deploying. Whereas if you do switch over to another system, you deploy there, you bring it up, you make sure it's up, and then you start moving the users over to it. It doesn't you know, blow up in your face as bad. You really can't speed up a deployment enough to avoid all problems. You know, they can be, you know, the kind of problems that can be fixed by deploying to a different machine and then switching over. Obviously, this assumes that you have, you know, kind of flexible allocation of hardware for your company. You know, it's not on-prem on a server that you own, but it's a cloud 
setup. And honestly, it's it's often better to deploy to a fresh environment and then redirect the existing traffic for other reasons in addition to this one. This approach also means that the old environment stays untouched while you verify that the new environment doesn't have any issues. This doesn't really solve problems like database migration rollbacks, but it does help you focus on the things that truly require manual intervention. Right, because you're not under as much time pressure. I mean, you probably are under some, but it's not like, hey, the system is down and we're losing X amount of dollars per minute it's down. It's just like, hey, you know, we need to get this cut over and, and simplify things. It's, it's a completely different pressure scenario. The other thing that this helps is if your application has a long spin-up cycle, uh, this allows you to get the new environment warmed up, you know, possibly as part of the deployment or as a post-deployment step before you start sending traffic to it. This keeps users from being inconvenienced by a system being slow because it's still doing you know, .NET JIT compilation or it's uh, building a bunch of Elasticsearch documents or you're you know, preheating the cache or you know, those kind of things. It just makes it easier to get those out of the way before the users slam into the system. Because once they do, it anything that slows things down, you're going to have people refreshing and doing other things that add more load. This also has the nice side effect that it forces you to design your upgrade path for backward compatibility because you'll break the system during deployment if you don't. Yeah. Now, there are times where you literally can't be backward compatible. I, I've right had that, but a lot of times, most of the time when I've had that issue, it was we were building something completely new that's going to replace what's existing, not updating the existing. Yeah, a good example is, uh, you know, for me that I've seen uh, that's really hard to do uh, in a backward compatible method is something like removing an index. Removing a field is okay, right? Because I can say, hey, I'm not mapping this field right now and I don't care about it. And maybe I'll make it nullable so that I can still insert into it or whatever. But when it's like, hey, I got to delete this index, I've got to make sure that I have removed all the code that needs it before I delete it. And you know, if I'm deleting an index, it's probably to optimize somewhere else. And so I don't, I don't get the other functionality until that index is removed. I mean, you will occasionally run into stuff that can't be backward compatible, but if your deployment architecture forces you to design that way, it will make you more likely to be able to do that. The next thing you should do for a resilient deployment is you should limit your load during application spinup. And this is actually kind of critical for a whole lot of other reasons besides just deployments, right? Like if, you know, you have an outage or something and you have to spin the app back up after an outage, like that can actually cause a catastrophic system failure, especially if it's at a time of heavy load already. It's really, really common when an application spins up to do a lot of stuff to improve runtime performance or to just get things ready. This can include stuff like preloading caches, uh, migrating your database to the latest version, which by the way, may be like moving big chunks of data around, that kind of crap. It could be stuff like wiring up dependency injection, which doesn't sound like it's all that much, except if you're you know, loading other modules and having to do a bunch of you know, reflective type code on them or those kind of things. Uh, you could be dynamically building images and other static assets, which I would hope you would do in your build pipeline and not do it here, but I know some people. Um, and sometimes people even generate code during this time period for various reasons, like they generate it on the fly and they build it. Uh, that's a really horrible idea. Uh, please don't do that uh, unless you've got a 
you know, like if you disagree with me and you can actually win the argument, then go ahead. Otherwise, if you think that you might lose the argument, you did. So don't do it. If you disagree with him and can actually win the argument, shoot us an email. We'll have you on the show because I want to hear you guys just battle it out. Well, I mean, I might agree with him at that point, right? Like there's there are certain cases where you might want to actually do that, but they are probably not typical SaaS apps. Now, some things simply have to get done while an application is starting up. However, the more work you can delay, the less risk it constitutes to deployment. Remember that from the time a deployment begins until it completes with all the old assets cleaned up, the predictability of system state is a lot lower than normal. And that's a risk. Yeah, and it's hard to estimate how bad of a risk it is because it Mm -hmm. changes literally between deployments and between stages of a given deployment. So you really... Like it's it's almost like risk squared. Like get rid of it as quick as you can. <laughs> Additionally, you're going to want to make sure that the spin up of an application does not create an undue amount of load for other parts of the system. So I have worked on a few systems where we kick off a lot of work into a job queue at the beginning of the application. So we go, you know, for every customer, rebuild all these kind of indexes that are in Elasticsearch or somewhere else. And, you know, you spin that off, it goes to an SQSQ, goes to a Lambda, comes back into the app, and it goes, hey, let's get all the people in that in that org and spend off separate job queue items for them. And then those come back in the app and it builds documents, right? And it could take an hour, but it's not happening. It's happening out of band of the system startup. But the problem is, if that job queue processor is not architected in such a way that it can run other jobs while this is going... You just plugged your queue, even though you're trying not to do that, like you just nailed yourself. So you got to kind of be a little bit careful about that. If your system creates excessive load during spinup, it makes it far more risky to deploy during periods of high load. This can put you in a bad spot when you discover that you need to deploy to fix something just before a period of high utilization. Yeah. Imagine your tax report has a bug in it. And you got a mono repo and you're building those reports, you know, before people access them. And it's midnight on April 14th in the US. Right. Like that, that is not ideal, <laughs> just to put it mildly. And you, you, you end up in a situation where you're trying to play games with load or you're just spending a crap ton of money on hardware to throw at it. And that, that's not a really good place to be. So, the the next principle we have is uh, mind your database migrations. It's common to do database migrations during application spinup. This can be a really bad idea for several reasons. First, if you're spinning up multiple instances, it can be really hard to coordinate. Yeah, you almost have to spin up one and get it hot, and then you spin up all the others. Mm-hmm. Or you have to put the database migration work somewhere else. Like a lot of people will generate a SQL script that runs during during the early part of the release process so that it's mm-hmm. done before the servers hit it. Um, and, and that could work. Yeah, what I've seen is the, the database, like the flow of process was the database and then the API and then the UI. Yeah, well, a I've got a commentary app. about the UI too here in a minute, but, yeah, because uh, that gets even more interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, a database migration can require an excessive amount of time if you are migrating certain things. 
So like if you're building an index on a huge table or you're moving a lot of data around, you may run into failures because most of your migration frameworks limit how long a migration step can take, right? Like I think, uh, I don't know if it's an Azure DevOps or an entity framework migration limit, but I think it's like 15 minutes. And we've hit that before at work and had to do stuff with like a manual script to get things ready or, you know, so you do have to kind of be careful about that because it can time out. And then what kind of state is your system in when it times out? You know, do you do you build migrations in such a way that you know that it will roll back to a good system state? So that's good just question. something to bear in mind. Yeah. <laughs> now, development and QA versions of databases often have limited amounts of data, lower load, and lack the kind of data weirdness that uh, tends to plague long-running production applications. Because of this, the things that can go wrong during a migration are often not found until the migration goes to production. Yeah, though I've had the reverse of this too, where... Yeah, I was going to say, like a QA database or a dev database has its own data weirdness, but the thing is, is nobody is paying and owning that data. Or paying uh, for and owning that data. Yeah, that, that, that's what I was, I was about to get to. Yeah, it's like we, we've had this where it was like, there's a lot of partial data in there because, all right, well, when we built this part of it, we created these, these records. And then we added all this other stuff that's now required. Like, oh yeah, data cleanup and dev is annoying, but necessary. Well, you just nuke and pave and rebuild the migration. <laughs> Like I said, annoying, but necessary. Yeah. But yeah, I've also had to deal with this aspect of it too, where uh, especially when you're like rebuilding an older system or migrating data into a new, like you've you've rebuilt the database even. I've done this where we, we built a whole new app to replace the existing one. And it was, the way they were storing data was so wonky. We actually had to write, I had to write an application to migrate the data because it was so wonky we couldn't even do it with SQL scripts. Yep, and they're done that. The rule I always heard, I mean, I forget who used to say this, was that a was it a database rule in the short term is a constraint and in the long term is a suggestion. You know, <laughs> because they don't like they don't last. Um, yeah. and so you'll have all kinds of business rules that were broken 5 years ago because they that wasn't a rule then. Um, mm-hmm. so it's not just you know, table constraints that get you. It's like a lot of other just bizarre things that happened years ago and we got away with it. Now, if a migration alters a lot of data, changes indexes, um, or adds additional constraints, it can also mean that things like your database index statistics are going to be out of date for a while, which if you're running the app in parallel with the current production version, means that you nailed the performance of the production version while you're in the middle of a deployment. Yeah. That's just something to be aware of. And if you combine that with a load spike during application spin-up, you are not headed to fun town. I'll just put it that way. You are going away from fun town towards the cliff. Yeah. Just, yeah. I've done that quite a few times. Mm-hmm. It's hard to avoid because you're not, you think about those pieces separately and then you get to think about them together when you weren't planning on thinking about them at all. Oh. So the next thing is front load CDN changes. If your application has a bit of scale to it, 
it's a pretty good chance that you're using a content delivery network or CDN to deliver static assets such as images, JavaScript files, CSS files, and that sort of thing. Doing this takes load off your application server and improves application performance. However, if you are refreshing a lot of data in the CDN when you deploy, you're going to want to make sure that this happens before anybody has occasion to access that data from your system. Uh, because you're going to break the app if the data isn't there, right? Like you deploy the Angular app and a lot of it's going to the CDN, maybe some of the images you use, those kind of things, or your JavaScript bundles. It's going to break in really strange ways. And when you come back to look at it next, go, okay, what's wrong with it? It'll be there. <laughs> and that's really frustrating to try to troubleshoot. So you're, you're going to want to get that out before you, know, you start testing it or before load starts coming onto the system. No. While for a lot of static assets, this can be resolved simply by putting the CDN content out in parallel. It does mean that you want to make sure this has happened before the new version goes live. Right. And sometimes, you know, the, you know uploading to the CDN, you know, most of the time is pretty quick, right? But sometimes those systems have issues or it has issues getting out to a particular edge node and takes a minute. So just you got to bear that timing in mind and it's hard to uh, keep your head around it if you are doing mass updates to cdn content that require code to execute so you're doing things like resizing images then you're going to probably want to do that work out of band and gate it with a feature flag that can be toggled when the work completes this way it doesn't hold up the deployment and it doesn't break the system in the interim so next use feature flags to limit risk if you're changing application functionality which you know, why are you deploying if you're not? You know, that's just sort of a basic assumption here. You should strongly consider rolling out changes behind a feature flag and slowly turning them on for your users. This is really good because users can kind of freak out when you change a bunch of stuff all at once. <laughs> and if you do it for everybody all at once, everybody freaks out all at once. Yes. Uh, and, and next, your support people get to freak out and then your dev team. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's how that rolls up. Mm -hmm. This also lets you make sure that new features work well in production, including under production level loads before changes are inflicted on the entire user base. It also makes it easier to roll back because it's potentially only uh, requires changing a feature flag rather than a redeploy. So you can say, hey, I'm rolling it out to 5% of the user base. Let's see how this goes. Do we get any load spikes? Okay, now we're going to go to 20%. Like you can kind of do that in a stair-step type manner and, and not nail yourself, essentially. If your feature flags are configurable per user or even per group of users, this also means that longer-running post-deployment processes can be configured to occur before the feature flag is switched over. Uh, this is an alternative to deploying the migration code, migrating, and then deploying an update that switches everyone over at once. Right. And so you'll see this in really large systems a lot of times where they're like, hey, we're migrating your stuff in the next month. You'll get a, an email warning two days before we start. We'll tell you when we've started. We'll tell you when we're done. And, you know, it's a feature flag. It's not a redeploy for every person. You know, and especially if you're like at Google or Yahoo type scale, even some of the smaller providers do that as well. Feature flags are also really handy when you want to inform other parts of the system that certain functionality is currently offline or is in a weird state, 
So this could be used to display things like warnings of degraded performance or even to keep certain operations from starting during a deployment. If you use this sparingly, it can really help improve your deployment resilience because you're limiting some other third part of the system from pushing a bunch of stuff in, essentially, and, and slamming you right as you're spinning up. The next thing you should do is you should cache bust and pre-build cache before you switch over. So if you have any data or structural changes to the same data between application versions, you're going to want to make sure that your updated version is kind of a cache busted version. In other words, it has a different URL so that you don't get the old version. Now, depending on uh, how expensive it is to regenerate the data, this could be as simple as having the application version be used when composing the cache key. However, there are other cases where it is more expensive to build the data that is in cache. In those cases, your cache may be a lot more similar to a document database uh, in a lot of ways. You know, In other words, it's a durable cache that doesn't really have a timeout. And you probably want to have the version of that document vary independently from the version of the application. So for instance, if you're, you know, if you're caching in Redis and you're like, hey, here's, you know, when I call this method with these parameters, here's what comes out. Okay, cool. I'll do that in regular caching. Okay, here is, you know, some complex report document that this user needs that takes a half hour to build. Well, I don't want to rebuild that every time I deploy a new version of the app, but this thing may be versioned separately so that I only up- update it and rebuild it when I actually have to. Yeah. In a lot of applications, the buildup of cache happens during application startup. While this can be good enough, you should be careful that it is only happens for cache data that rarely changes and has a long lifetime. Otherwise, a slow spin-up could mean that things have fallen out of cache by the time they're actually needed. Yeah, and you tend to prioritize the things that you most need, um, and so they're the ones that are most likely to fall out. Uh, ask me how I know that one. <laughs> How do you know that? Because <laughs> I've stepped on that rake. <laughs> Couldn't That's how. It. So finally, have appropriate monitoring and notifications. While it's great to have robust, resilient deployment systems, you still need to have some mechanism for knowing when something goes wrong. Because frankly, things are going to go wrong. This requires things like application performance monitoring and notifications when you do actually have errors, because expect to have errors. Right. And those uh, warnings and notifications, you need to be careful about how you do them too, so that you can actually notice when something's wrong. <laughs> you need to make sure that notification channels are not noisy from spurious errors. You know, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I'll throw an exception on this and it bubbles up and it's, oh, it's a you know 500, it's a server exception, but it's actually a completely expected data condition and probably should be a 400 error that's filtered out and doesn't go to your team's channel. That kind of thing. Because people can't see the real errors when they get a whole bunch of those. You basically get notification fatigue and then you don't know when something really goes wrong because you are used to ignoring that channel because it's full of junk. Yeah. Make sure that the metadata on your logging and notifications is sufficient to let someone quickly filter this data. Even better, have filtered views of the data in place so that it's possible to troubleshoot that data without having to dig into another system. Yeah, and we use Application Insights views for that. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so we've got some set up that's like, you yeah. know, hey, if something's going wrong with the system, I can actually go see what that is. And it filters out some of the things that are kind of noisy. Mm-hmm. I like those. It, those are good. Yeah, they're great. Uh, yeah. Especially when somebody else does it and you don't have to touch it. <laughs> because like, yeah. I mean, when you get up at five in the morning and you come in and stuff is busted, it's nice to be able to go to that view as the coffee is kicking in where you don't have to think so much. It's like, okay, I can see what's wrong, not try to figure out how I can determine what's wrong first. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. So deployments can be one of the most challenging and frankly irritating parts of writing software. To do them well, you have to walk a tightrope between consistency and application behavior and avoiding application downtime. Now, depending on what your software does, you will find that you err on one side of this or the other. And there isn't a right position. It's just like you got to pick one that sort of works for you most of the time. However, regardless of which position is better for your organization, getting your deployments right and making them resilient will make it much easier to deliver software to your end users with a minimum amount of difficulty. That pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have this week for us for Tricks of the Trade? So... As we, we've been talking about this, I, I've been thinking, you know, it's very important when you have a deployment to come at it with a plan. You know, and like we, we've, we've basically been talking about how to optimize that plan. But what I want to talk about is like, you want to make a plan for the complex things in life, not just for deployments or for software development. Having a plan is going to make the things in your life It'll help you to have a focus and know what's going on to get what you want. Because if you go into it, like, let's take, for example, buying a car. If you go in with, all right, I just need a new car and that's it. You don't have a plan. You could end up with anything and hate it. But you do some research, you have a plan, you go and this is what I want. This is what I'm willing to spend, things like that. I'm going through this house buying process. And since it's my first time buying a house, they had me take this class on, uh, I'm buying a house for the first time. It was kind of weird because I'm like, this is a unique situation that I'm in with the having already been in it. So I'm not going through the like shopping for a house process, but uh, whatever. But one of the key things with that was go in with a plan. Like you go in and you get your loan, your mortgage loan information before you even start shopping for a house, you know? And having not done that before, I didn't know that until I, I went in at it, I was like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense, though, because you got to know what you can afford. And so what I'm getting at here is like this whole time we've been talking about basically your plan for deployment. I'm saying make a plan and use these, like, not exactly these tips, but uh, use this concept of having a plan in place before you go out and do things, especially big decisions, big things in your life. Um, and that's that's pretty much all I've got. Guys, check out the Aftercast where we are going to discuss the principles of better deployments and what developers need from deployments. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.